Hello and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and with me today is Dr. Tina Tady. She is Assistant Professor of Medicine of the Section of Endocrinology, Tulane University Health Science Center, and we're going to be talking about diabetes and all things diabetes. We're actually here live doing our program from the Guideline to Practice seminar here at Pasadena, California, and we actually have people who are listening to the interview coming by because we're on one of our breaks. Dr. Tady is about to give a talk on the management of type 2 diabetes, a patient-centered approach. And Dr. Tady, first of all, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Dr. McDonough. My first question with you is, there's a lot of talk, and all of us in primary care are concerned about it, about pre-diabetes and what it is and how it's really revolutionized the way we're approaching the condition. Tell me a little bit about pre-diabetes, how we determine it, and also how important it's become from your perspective. So here's what's very important to realize. You know, when the term pre-diabetes is coined, the idea is to not have that gap between somebody who's normal glycemic, meaning does not have diabetes, and then some. the next thing you know is somebody has diabetes. So there's this zone where somebody is not normal, yet does not have a biochemical diagnosis of diabetes. So I think the term pre-diabetes is very, very helpful. How can you diagnose it? Well, through fasting blood sugars as well. If your blood sugar is more than 100 or 100 to 125. And, you know, one of the things that when you use A1C for diagnosis purposes, A1C does not have to be fasting. So you don't lose the patient. You can do an A1C right away, even if the patient is not fasting. And an A1C of 5.7 to 6.4 is prediabetes. So what does this mean? Here's what it's very important to realize. When you have someone with prediabetes, is that once you have the diagnosis, is number one to inform the patient. You'll be surprised as to how many patients do carry the diagnosis. We see it in their lab results, but they haven't been informed. So number one, inform the patient. Number two, I think diabetes education certainly is very, very justified in these group of people to send them for diabetes education so they can make the lifestyle changes that need to be made. And very importantly also, you can now use metformin. If somebody has a diagnosis of prediabetes and has obesity, you can definitely use metformin because the whole idea is to prevent any further progression. And you don't necessarily want to wait till the patient gets to the diagnosis of diabetes to take action. So certainly all these measures can be put in place to help the patient from progressing further. A couple things. The hemoglobin A1C and how it's become so much more important. I remember when it first came out, it was our, it was our snapshot, kind of could tell if patients were cheating, if they were really doing what they said they did. Now we're using it more and more, actually, for diagnosis as a diagnosis tool, it seems. Absolutely. And the advantage there, again, is the fact that, you know, before, let's say if you have somebody in the office and you really want to test them for either prediabetes or diabetes, if you have the patient go get fasting blood work done, you don't want to lose the opportunity that you give somebody orders and the patient does not get the blood work done. So when you have an A1C, that number one can be done in a non-fasting state, it's wonderful. The other advantage of A1C is if your fasting glucose is normal, but you yet have postprandial hyperglycemia, so that 
you know, when those numbers are different in a normal, like in a fasting state versus after a meal, they're higher. So those numbers, the postprandial hyperglycemia can get captured in the A1C. So when A1C gives you an overall reading, and that's how I think A1C is very helpful as well. And that has been a major change for a lot of people as they're trying to keep up with their practice. Oh, absolutely. I think A1C is being used more and more. You mentioned starting with the metformin, and obviously when you do, you still have a lot of people concerned. There's these old feelings about diabetes. You know, they they know that their older relative went to the hospital and was told they had diabetes right before they died. It had nothing to do with their cause of death, really, or it made a small role, but they associated diabetes with death or diabetes with bad health, and now they're being told this. How do you mention that and, and deal with it with patients? Because they're probably saying, why do I start a medicine quicker than I have to? Right, right. And I think also, you know, when you mention pre-diabetes and you say, okay, this is like you're on your way to diabetes, so more so, I totally agree the, with the mindset that people think, why do I necessarily have to start something now? I think the key here is when you look at management of diabetes, or for that matter, of any chronic diseases that you see, but more so, very, very critical to diabetes is the fact that you have to educate the patient. And when you sit down with the patient and you talk about the pathophysiology of diabetes as to why they've come to this state, and actually what I've found is when you discuss the benefits of metformin to see how it'll help them make them more insulin sensitive, address the underlying insulin resistance problem, and people tend to then become more amenable to taking metformin. And so if you kind of word it in a way that it'll help you prevent getting to that stage quicker or just, you know, help stabilize you in this current state, that is very, very helpful to them. So in a nutshell, I think educating the patient as to why they need it certainly goes a long way. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough. My guest is Dr. Tina Tady. We are talking about diabetes. We're in Pasadena at the G2P seminar, and she's about to speak to the group about management of type 2 diabetes, a patient-centered approach. We're during a break right now. You probably hear a little of the background noise, people getting something to eat during the CME presentations today. We're talking about prediabetes, and obviously there's many things going on now in the world of diabetes. Tell me a little bit about insulin management and some new new theories related to that. So here's one of the very important things for all of us as a medical community to realize. Number one is to understand that when somebody presents to you with a very high A1C, and if you suspect that right at the very beginning, in addition to even starting your oral medications, if somebody has enough insulin deficiency and would benefit from insulin, it is okay to go ahead and start insulin. And, you know, being aggressive and having an intensive insulin adjustment is okay. Okay. But, however, realizing that this has to be done in the right setting and with the right patient, because one of the things also that we really emphasize on is avoidance of hypoglycemia. And it's important to realize you never want to get to an A1C number with having recurrent severe enough hypoglycemia. So, yes, it's okay to start insulin as and when needed, even when your other agents that you started, be it oral agents, be it even your other injectable agents that are non-insulin, like, for example, GLP-1 agonist, 
it's okay to combine them where indicated along with insulin. And so that's an important thing to realize. And, you know, also... Depending, again, on the patient, you can also let the patient self-titrate their insulin. And I just, again, find that as you go along, even if there's a need to add on mealtime insulin, as you talk to the patient, discuss with them why it is you're doing, that certainly goes a long way. And last but not least, what we've known in the, you know, in the last few years is as, of course, the incidence of obesity is increasing, there's more insulin resistance, we have a group of people, a subgroup of people, I should say, that are needing more and more insulin. And prior to this, we did not have concentrated basal insulin, but we now have basal insulin, which is Lantus, which is three times as concentrated, and it's U300 under the brand name Tejo. So that certainly helps us in giving more insulin to somebody with a smaller volume as well. So that's another thing that's important to note as well. I know a lot of people have been talking about that. In the hospital setting, is that something that you continue, or do you stay away from the hospital setting with patients, or is U300 okay? So I uh, have to say, I, you know, if somebody needs it in the hospital, if their insulin requirement is that much, I imagine it certainly would be okay. But since it's just recently come on the market, I'm not sure if the hospitals are uh, providing the U300 insulin. And I certainly, for one, have not done that yet. But, of course, given the patient's requirements, it certainly could be something that you could entertain. And the only reason I'm mentioning this, just thinking way out, is the potential for someone maybe getting mixed up or giving that medicine instead of regular insulin. I absolutely yeah. understand. And I think that is why when you have an in- something that's three times as concentrated, you know, it just results in a smaller volume, but you're giving the patient the amount of insulin that's needed. But I think when it comes to insulin administration, yes, totally agree that it should not have the names mixed up with anything else. And if you listen to this program, often enough, you know, I'm a stickler for med at admission and medical reconciliation at discharge, and these things are really important because Absolutely. we go back and forth. But, but great opportunities for patients, you know, to get better care and to have the kind of care they need in control. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. Our guest is Dr. Tina Tady. She is Assistant Professor of Medicine. She's with the Section of Endocrinology at Tulane University Health Science Center. She's joining me here in California, out in Pasadena, where we're having our conference today all day through Prova Education, the Guideline to Practice Conference, and she's going to be speaking momentarily. And I know, I'm not sure if it's in your lecture or not, but the whole concept of continuous glucose monitoring and how that's really changing things as well. Maybe you could address that. So continuous glucose monitoring by all means has its place. And it can be very helpful in a, the right kind of patient. You know, be it, especially when you have someone with type 1 diabetes. And what happens is a lot of people have severe hypoglycemia. A lot of people actually have hypoglycemia unawareness where they really are not symptomatic with the symptoms of low blood sugar till they are very, very low. So in those patients, when you have a continuous glucose monitor on, you can actually have alarms set up. And with these alarms, when you have a trend that's going low enough and the patient knows that they're heading towards hypoglycemia, they can either adjust their rates or do something about it. So I think it's a very, very good tool for a select group of patients. 
So it's something that you're going to see it kind of gain more momentum over time? It is certainly, it has actually certainly gained more momentum as we go on with use in different groups and different settings also for different kinds of patients, yes. We only have a few more minutes left in the program, but are there areas that I didn't touch on as far as treatment of diabetes? I know you're immersed in that world. Things we should talk about that might be of interest to our audience. So uh, here's, you know, we recently had our uh, American Diabetes Association 75th uh, scientific session in Boston. And when you look at all our drugs that are now coming out in the market, we certainly have many more drugs in our armamentarium than we did years ago. And one of the concerns certainly is cardiovascular safety. And there have been guidance put forth by the FDA as to uh, assessing cardiovascular safety for all the drugs that come out. And, you know, there are data from large trials that have definitely shown that we have microvascular benefit from intensive glucose control. And we know that it has to be individualized. It's not one size fit all. And you don't necessarily aim for a number. You look at all the different aspects when treating a patient. So with that said, there's been a recent release of the VADT data, the Veterans Affairs Diabetes Trial, where this is a 10-year follow-up data that just got released that has shown a benefit in the group that had received intensive glycemic control as compared to the standard arm. And, you know, the data for cardiovascular benefits is not consistent across the board in the different trials, but you have to realize there is a lot of heterogeneity in the trials. Different trials have different uh, groups of people that were randomized, different agents that were used, and, of course, different targets of glycemia as well. So... I think one of the key points to remember is it can certainly take a while to see cardiovascular benefit, even though in the VADT trial they have not yet demonstrated improvement in mortality. And the other piece of news that is now available is a TCOS trial that was assessing the safety of the drug citagliptin on cardiovascular status has been shown to be safe for cardiovascular health. That's important news as well. That's absolutely important to keep in mind. We only have about 30 seconds left, but one of the things we were talking about prior to this conversation is just the sheer number of medications that are out there. What do you suggest primary care doctors do as far as trying to kind of keep it all in their heads so they can do the best thing for their patients? You know, so here's what my suggestion would be, which I think we all pretty much go through the same logarithm in our heads when we are sitting across the patients and we have all these different options. It really hones in around making your decisions uh, aligned with the model of patient-centered care. Yes, we have many different options, but it's equally important to talk to the patient to see what they would be willing to do. Number two, look at the side effects and the benefits. For example, if you have someone who's obese and would benefit from weight loss and you think the patient needs an injectable, it's definitely okay to look at that benefit and suggest that the patient can try a GLP-1 agonist. Um, On the other hand, if insulin is needed, certainly discuss the benefits of insulin with the patient and go forward with that. So I think looking at the risks, the benefits, and of course, when it is contraindicated is certainly very, very important according to the renal function. Um, And just discuss these options with the patient because at the end, you know, if you even if you go ahead and give a patient a medication that you want to give if the patient does not want to take it, the purpose is defeated. 
Dr. Tina Tady, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Section Endocrinology, Temple Tulane University School of Medicine, Health Science Center. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. You're very welcome. My pleasure. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. You've been listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. This is our program live from Pasadena at the conference of Prova Education's Guideline to Practice. Until next time, if you want to hear any of this or other interviews, just reach out to ReachMD.com. You can download the app. You can catch it on your iPod any way you want to hear it. It's there for you. Until next time, take care. <laughs>